Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is the birth of Jesus, and specifically talking about the Old Testament passages that are used in the book of Matthew, where we read about the birth of Jesus. I have three guests in the studio today. First guest is Dr. David Lowry. David Lowry uh, teaches New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. And second guest is Dr. Gordon Johnston, who teaches Old Testament here. And Dr. Daryl Bach, who's normally ride, uh, driving this podcast, but is one of our expert guests today. He's I'm the... riding the wave with you today. <laughs> <laughs> and Daryl is the executive director of cultural engagement at the Hendricks Center and senior research professor of New Testament at DTS. Welcome, Daryl. Pleasure to be here. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you. And welcome, David. Thank you. We have a good panel here. We have a good uh, five things we want to talk about in terms of five key passages in the book of Matthew that talk about the birth of Jesus and use little parts of the Old Testament. And we want to approach the conversation this way. When it's a Christmas service, there are people in the pew who are reading along, the pastor is giving a, a message, and they read these passages, and it says, here's what the prophet says in the Old Testament. Sometimes people will say, where's that come from? What prophet? Or maybe they have a footnote in their Bible, and they say, okay, well, I'm going to go there. And they want to figure out how, how does this relate to what Matthew is doing. And then for pastors as well, as they're preparing their messages, uh, what the significance is of these things that they can bring out. So we'll talk about uh, Matthew 1. There's one passage in there, and then um, there's uh, four passages in Matthew 2 that we'll discuss. So let's just dive right in. We'll take a look at the first passage, and I'm going to read these passages, because as we've learned before, nothing beats uh, looking at the text, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing and nothing at all. That's right. So let's take a look at the first one. This is in Matthew 1, talking about the birth of Jesus. I'm going to read from verse 18 on to 23, and we're going to key in on that last part, um, 22 and 23. So Matthew 1, 18 starts out like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then we have verse 23, which is a quotation. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, sometimes people will notice there's a footnote in their Bible, and they'll say there's a footnote. It says this refers to Isaiah 7, 14. But Gordon, when we take a look at this, say flip back to Isaiah, and you're thinking about how did Isaiah's audience hear this language of virgin and Emmanuel. What's the backstory here? Sure, this, and it's an important passage because if we are going from Matthew back to Isaiah 7, there may be some surprises where somebody might assume that this was a crystal clear, direct prophecy of the virgin birth of the Messiah. But when you look at the context, it's the King Ahaz, mm -hmm. 735 B.C., He's being besieged, Jerusalem's being besieged by two enemies, the Arameans and the Israelites to the north. And Isaiah the prophet shows up and says, don't be afraid because these two countries that are your two enemies, they're going to be wiped off the scene within the next generation or so. And he says as a sign for that to confirm that you'll, you'll be safe, uh, that God's going to give you a confirming sign. And this, typically the, the word sign would be, this, this would be fulfilled before that. So the the, the expectation would be that whatever the sign is going to be would be fulfilled before the end of the next generation. And he says the sign is going to be that, that an Alma is, is uh, pregnant and about to give birth, and uh, she, and actually the, the Hebrew could be understood in terms of you, in the Septuagint even translate that way, you, young woman, will call his name Emmanuel. So, and, and then it says, and then after he's born, he's going to eat curds and honey, so he knows to choose the good and not the evil. And before, he's, before he knows good and evil, uh, the two kings that you fear are going to be wiped away, and then the king of Assyria is going to come up on the land. And that likely happened in 701 B.C. with Sennacherib. So these events happen 
Samaria gets destroyed in 722, Damascus 732, Sennacherib 701. So we're, we're talking about the 8th century. And mm. in the context, we're probably talking about, Isaiah is probably addressing, or at least referring to a woman, a young woman in Alma. The Hebrew word Alma is young woman. But Tula, a different word, was a technical term for virgin. Mm. And he doesn't use that. So there's a young woman. The Hebrew could be read easily that this young woman is already pregnant and about to give birth. And so we're looking, we'd be expect that this would be fulfilled in the in near view. In Isaiah chapter 8, there's a parallel passage that appears to be uh, a parallel description of Isaiah's own son. So in the mm-hmm. near context, this is probably uh, fulfilled historically. Now, there's a broader context in Isaiah 9 mm. that there's a, a Davidic king to come who's going to be born. And it's remarkable that Matthew doesn't quote that passage, but, but Isaiah 7. And it's interesting, this probably would not have been a text that would have been in the first century somebody would have been necessarily going to messianically. Mm-hmm. The Isaiah 7 was, it appears people understood this as being fulfilled in the 8th century. Okay. It was never really one of the inventories on the inventory list for future messianic prophecies to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think the best way to understand this is that Matthew is seeing some kind of typological escalation that when this child was born in the 8th century, it was a sign that God was there to protect and provide and deliver his people. But then how much more in the 1st century mm-hmm. with, with Jesus, the ultimate son? And David might want to talk about the Parthenos, the Septuagint translated the, the Hebrew word Alma, Hebrew Alma, young woman, the Greek Septuagint translated Parthenos that at the time meant young woman. Uh, it could be used of a virgin, but technically meant young woman. But by the time you come to the first century, it starts being used more and more a virgin. Hmm. And so it's there under the providence of God mm-hmm. for Matthew to seize upon. And Matthew's not getting the virgin birth because... Isaiah 7.14 was direct prophecy. He's getting the virgin birth because he knows there was a virgin yeah. birth. And under the providence of God, the wording, the, the language here, the, the theology, it's all there for Matthew to bring out these parallels and to escalate it and see that God's doing an even greater work mm-hmm. now today. Mm-hmm. So the word in the, in the Old Testament uh, for, for young woman here is a ge- more general term, it's a more general term. than virgin. Yeah, and it can be used in reference to virgin, but it technically didn't mm-hmm. mean virgin, and, and she's already pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so if case. most people have thought the fulfillment happened already, they weren't waiting around for, let's see if somebody is born of a virgin, they might be the Messiah, right? right. No one was thinking right. that. David, let's think about how in Matthew's context he used this. Why would Matthew go to this, and what would be significant for his audience? I think there are a couple of correspondences in this passage that uh, Matthew is interested in. One, as Gordon brought up, is the um, statement about the birth of this child from a virgin. But there's also the uh, historical correspondence related to the time of Ahaz, the troubles, and now the time of troubles associated with Herod, the king. And the confidence, uh, the the idea of God's presence, which is brought out then with the idea of the name Emmanuel, God with us, Mm -hmm. a word of assurance then that the purposes of God are being accomplished. And despite the troubling times and the uh, apparent difficulties associated with what we'll see as the life of Jesus, uh, God's purposes are going to be accomplished. And he is with his people, particularly, as Gordon said, escalation in the person of Jesus, his presence is manifested. So it's both a word of assurance, a word of fulfillment, but a reminder that the purposes of God are going to be achieved, Mm. and Jesus is going to be the focal point of what God is going to do in terms of his presence with his people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is one of those cases where we don't want to narrow what we mean by fulfillment. I mean, Daryl might mm-hmm. be the one want to talk about that mm-hmm. because there's something interesting going on with that fulfillment language. Yeah, unpack that a little bit. How do we see uh, fulfillment working here? Well, this is, as Gordon has mentioned, it's a, it's a typological prophetic text, which means that an event in the short term mirrors something coming later, and often the mirroring event that comes down the road is a more escalated or uh, or more amazing kind of fulfillment of the pattern. And that's what I think we have here. We have 
a woman who's announced to give birth to a sign child. Jesus is going to be a sign child, believe me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he means God with us. And so, um, so we have this sign child that shows that the program of God is moving ahead. But instead of this being about a young woman who either is pregnant or about to become pregnant in the original setting, we now have someone who's a virgin who gives birth, so that's an escalation. And God with us is not merely the presence of God in our midst, although it's certainly that, but it is, if I can have some fun here, God with us. <laughs> this is CNN. I mean, there's an escalation here, mm-hmm. and that escalation has pushed, um, is being pushed to the limit. So it's a pattern fulfillment. And then that sometimes bothers people. That it's not a direct fulfillment, you know, a direct prediction looking hundreds of years down the line. Mm -hmm. But I tell people what's more amazing, that God predicts a single event down the road or that there is a pattern that God is exercising Mm -hmm. across time at multiple places and in multiple spaces that shows a connection and a a design to what it is that God is doing. So Mm -hmm. I actually see typological prophetic fulfillment as a a sign of God's hands being across history Mm -hmm. and not just in one event. And so Mm -hmm. I think that helps to to explain the kind of fulfillment that we're dealing with here. It's not a retreat from a view about what God is doing. It actually invests God with more involvement in history to see it this way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how would we respond to, I know there are some skeptics who would say Matthew probably just made up the whole virgin birth thing because um, he was sitting around waiting for um, a, a virgin to be born, and, and he uh, made up the story so that Jesus could be the Messiah. So we know they weren't waiting around for that. Well, and we, we, know from the first, we know from the Talmud that, that there was a live controversy in the first century that mm-hmm. Mary was claiming this because the Talmud even mm-hmm. refers to this. Mm-hmm. They're trying to refute this, and they know that that this was the claim. And, and Talmud even refers to Jesus pejoratively as Yeshua ben uh, 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 what is it? Pantera. Pantera, oh, yeah. which probably uh-huh. is kind of a slur on Parthenos, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that it's clear that they know what the claim is, that Matthew's not making this up, that they're dealing with with, with that claim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I, I think the interesting thing about this text is, is that because of the modern controversy, we get locked up about whether we're virgin or young woman and, and, what, and how that fulfillment happens. And I think we actually miss the point of the text. The point of the text is, is that this child represents God with us. Mm-hmm. And, and God's program is moving ahead. So we get stuck in the first part of the passage. Mm-hmm. The point of the passage is coming really at the end mm-hmm. and advances the story. And so, so in that sense, some of this skepticism that we end up having to deal with, I'm not saying you shouldn't deal with it, but having to deal with gets us off the track in terms of what's happening in the narrative. Mm-hmm. And the other thing Daryl's made the point before about you know, uh, the, the, uh, the fact that there were no Jewish expectations coming into the first century that the Messiah would be, would be virgin born. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the claim of the virgin birth created a controversy. So if, if Matthew completely contrived this, he would have contrived something that would have been going against expectations. Mm-hmm. Why would he do that unless this actually had happened? Yeah, yeah. We don't want to miss either the emphasis on Jesus being the means by which God is going to save his people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he saved his people by delivering them ultimately uh, from the the enemies in the time of Ahaz, but he delivers them preeminently through Jesus mm. in uh, his birth and in his death and resurrection, which Matthew will narrate the end of his gospel. Mm. I think we're going to see this kind of pattern fulfillment showing up more and more as we progress through this this. Yeah, narrative. it's the most common way that the Old Testament is used in the New, and it's also the most underappreciated. Hmm. This theme of God's presence also is found in chapter 18 of Matthew, where Jesus talks about the resolution of controversy in the church, but most importantly, at the end of the gospel, when he sends out the disciples, he says, you're going to make disciples of the nations of the world, and I will be with you. So this God with us theme mm. begins with reference to Jesus' birth and continues with reference to the mission to the world. It's hmm. a good observation. Let's move on to chapter 2, and let's take a look at the second text. This is the visit of the wise men, or the Magi, and it starts out uh, verse 1. We'll read until 6 and focus in on verse 6. Matthew chapter 2 says, 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who, was, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For, so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's this last section that I want to key in on where we have this quotation. Again, some people will see a footnote in their Bible that points us to Micah 5, 2. But how did the original audience hear this in the Old Testament, Gordon? Well, it's interesting because unlike Isaiah 7, 14, which was not on anybody's radar screen until Jesus came in terms of being a Messianic text, Isaiah 5, 2 was hmm. a Messianic text. But it's also remarkable because uh, the direction that Micah is going, Matthew is, is, is going in that direction, building upon it, but in some surprising ways. In the context of Micah 5, uh, 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 you've got the Jerusalem is under siege by the Assyrians. He, uh, Micah also announces that eventually uh, Jerusalem is going to be taken into exile by the Babylonians, so 701 B.C., 586 B.C. But in the future, Jerusalem is going to be restored by a coming David, a new David, a greater David, who is going to come out of the veritable roots where David came from with Bethlehem. We, Book of Ruth takes us all the way back to Bethlehem with mm -hmm. Naomi and Ruth and Boaz leading uh, to David. In the context, though, this ruler that's coming out that, that, I, that Micah is anticipating is that he's uh, going to end up defeating the enemies of the people of God. And he, Isaiah describes it as if the next time Assyria tries to besiege us, we're going to chase them back, and we're going to besiege them, hmm. and the enemies of God are going to be defeated. And so Micah is picturing him in terms of uh, this mighty ruler and, 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 and military warrior who's going to defeat the enemy because that was at the time. When Matthew cites this, um, he's not got a military conqueror in mind, mm -hmm. but rather the one that ultimately will defeat sin and with the victory over sin, which ultimately is the reason why mm -hmm. there's trouble mm -hmm. in the world. And Matthew tags Micah 5 with uh, uh, not who'll be the ruler, but as the shepherd. And he, he picks up on Second Samuel or Second Samuel 7, mm -hmm. where he says, David, you used to be a ruler or sorry, a shepherd. I took you out from the pastures as a shepherd, and I made you a shepherd over my people. So he's picturing in terms of where David had these obscure beginnings and was a shepherd. So he's blending ruler with shepherd imagery, and if you will, almost suggesting that when that, that this Messiah, Jesus, uh, is going to have the shepherd role first before he comes in terms of hmm. the mighty conqueror. But it's got typological escalation as well, and uh, you've got second Exodus imagery with, with the Messiah, so it's really a remarkable, hmm. profound passage. Okay, so this was something that was seen as a messianic text. People were waiting for the Messiah to fulfill this But they're really, idea. from the context, they're set up that he's going to be this military conqueror mm -hmm, who's mm -hmm. going to defeat the Assyrians and defeat the Babylonians, and, and, and he is the defeater, but it's not military. It's, mm. it's something more profound. Yeah, yeah. Well, David, if people were waiting around for this messianic prophecy to be fulfilled, why did Herod have to call the chief priests and, and the teachers of the law? Why do you have to call them? Yeah, I think it's an interesting contrast going on in this passage between the question the wise men uh, ring, which is they are responding to natural revelation. They think there's a king born. Where is this king? And then Herod calls his scribes to say, what do we know about this? And they quote this passage from, as Gordon said, Micah 5.1 and 2 Samuel 5.2 uh, concerning the one who's going to shepherd the people of Israel. So uh, Herod wants to know what's going on with regard to this possible king being born, ask for information about it, receive special revelation. But it's interesting, as Matthew presents this, the wise men rejoice at the news and go and worship 
whereas Herod decides he needs to kill the child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, in some measure, an illustration of for, for readers of what should be expected with regard to the response, generally speaking, of the political and religious leaders with regard to this child. Now, Herod's going to try and kill the child, as we shall see in another passage, but he's ultimately unsuccessful. However, Pilate, at the end, is successful in bringing about the death of Jesus. But in the Passion narrative, Jesus basically says, all these things uh, must happen in accordance with what the scriptures say. So mm -hmm. we're seeing a pattern all the way through mm -hmm. the gospel in mm -hmm. some respect of what God said is fulfilled, is carried out, but it's in his time, in his uh, plan, and uh, for his purpose. Hmm. It's interesting we have this juxtaposition of the Gentiles, the wise men, were the ones who were seeking the king, um, the king of the Jews, really, right? And then we have the person who is reigning as the king of the Jews, and he's rejecting. Yes, and the religious leaders mm -hmm. who know the special revelation, but basically, as far as we can tell, were unresponsive to it. They didn't go to Bethlehem to mm -hmm, worship. Mm -hmm. It's the Gentiles who did. And there's mm -hmm. an irony in the fact that, you know, Matthew is normally characterized as the gospel written to the Jews, but it's containing hints that the responsiveness is not going to come predominantly from within Israel. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Why did, in, in Micah, if you take a look at Micah, there's a part that they leave out. They leave out this part about how his origins were from the distant past. Why would they leave that part out? Uh, to be honest, I don't know. I'm not a mind reader. <laughs> um, but, um, but I do think that it's important to see um, the identification with Bethlehem. That part of the passage is um, probably as close to a predictive element as we see anywhere in these passages that we're going to be discussing. Mm -hmm. And so there's the idea that these origins, um, you know, out of Judah, not just out of Judah, but out of Bethlehem, that's an important, uh, important feature. So what, this, what the Scripture delivers to the wise men you know, is more than what the stars are giving them. Mm. Uh, the stars are giving them the sense that something of significance has happened. A king is probably being born somewhere, but where exactly? And uh, and this is the this is the um, telegram that tells you exactly where to go, or at least the city to go to. <laughs> Bethlehem wasn't very big, so mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. you would you would. <laughs> the sign saying entering Bethlehem and then the sign saying leaving Bethlehem would be really close to one another. So. <laughs> well, it's interesting because some of the passages of typological escalation, in mm -hmm. this case, it's an ultra-literal fulfillment mm -hmm. because when he talks about he's gonna, his origins are from old, ancient times, Bethlehem, it may not be saying, making a claim that it's, he is going to be born in Bethlehem, but his origin, his roots are from Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. He's going to be a veritable second David, mm -hmm. you know, wherever he might be born. But the irony is, in this case, he actually was born in Bethlehem mm -hmm. uh, in, in literal fulfillment of it. But then, then there's more typological fulfillment of other parts. Mm -hmm. He's not this conquering hero. He's more of the shepherd and the conqueror of sin and evil. So mm -hmm. there's mm -hmm. all sorts of things happening. Yeah, the juxtaposition of Micah with 2 Samuel 7 is important because that is evoking the Davidic covenant and the Davidic covenant promise and hope, mm -hmm. which eventually in the development uh, within Judaism became focused on a specific Davidic deliverer as opposed to just the line, this is what the line of David's going to be like for the mm -hmm. nation, and God's going to be behind it, and that king is going to be seen as a son. All those kinds of things were al already there, but that hope crystallized into the expectation there's going to be someone who brings a decisive deliverance with whom the eschaton's going to come, all that kind of stuff. And all that baggage, if you mm -hmm. will, is coming with this citation in terms of what it's evoking. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's almost a promise, isn't it? Uh, yeah. When it says, he will shepherd his people. Mm -hmm. um, he has said earlier that he will save his people from their sins. Mm -hmm. Now he's going to be the shepherd. And you wonder, will he really do this for the people of Israel? And, of course, the gospel is going to answer, yes, he will. But mm -hmm. uh, it's based in the... The promise of God. And that actually mm -hmm. has a very important point attached to it, which is sometimes when we talk about salvation, we think it's just about forgiveness of sins. But no, the point of forgiving sins is to build a relationship with mm -hmm. the living God in which he participates in leading and guiding and shepherding us. And so the point of salvation is never just to tick a box, say, my sins are forgiven and one day I'm going to be in heaven. No, it's about this ongoing relationship, this journey with God that I'm going to be on in which he's going to be my protector, my leader, my guider, 
et cetera, uh, in, in my enabler. And, and all that is wrapped up in the idea of being, being the shepherd who looks after the sheep. Hmm. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, let's take a look at our third passage now from Matthew 2, and this is Matthew 2, 13, uh, moving into a quotation, a uh, very short quotation there at the end of uh, verse 14. So let's just read those two verses quickly. And this is the flight to Egypt. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And this is the part I want to key in on. It says, And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And again, people may take a look in a footnote and see there's a, a reference to Hosea 11.1. 1. And so, Gordon, I'm going to turn to you and ask, who is this my son in the context of uh, the Hosea? Well, this is another passage. amazing, remarkable uh, use of the Old Testament in mm. Matthew. Um, uh, and it, we're, we're getting into all different ways in which he's seeing fulfillment work under the providence of God and the desi- design of God. When you look at Hosea 11, uh, when he talks about out of Egypt I call my son, it's not prophetic at all. It's looking historically back in terms of God's son being Israel coming out of, of Egypt when, uh, when, uh, as his, his collective son, and he's describing Israel collectively as a son in the Exodus, and it goes on and says, uh, when Israel was a child, I loved him out of Egypt. I called my son. The more they called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, yet I was the one who taught Ephraim to walk. So it's clear in the context that the son here was, was Israel, who was a disobedient son. He called Israel to be a covenant-keeping people. They weren't. Uh, and then he ends up going uh, down to verse 5. He says, they're going to go back to Egypt. They're going to go back to Assyria. I'm going to reverse the exodus. And, uh, and, and Isaiah, or Hosea ends up predicting a, a second exodus. And eventually, chapter 3 talks about a new David who's going to be part of that second exodus. So it's, it's really clearly uh, Matthew is doing some things in terms of he's seeing a pattern again that at one point his people were in Egypt and God brought them out in the first exodus. The first exodus is going to have to be reversed because his people uh, violated this. But Hosea also has a second exodus imagery. And in chapter 3, he's got a Davidic figure there. So I think, I think Matthew is, is looking at Hosea holistically and sees this whole thing. And he sees patterns in terms of the Holy Family being warned to go down to Egypt. And, uh, and that's where, he, where Matthew's quoting him, that he's going down. He sent mm-hmm. him down to Egypt mm-hmm. so he can bring them back out. And when he brings them back out, it's not Israel collectively. It's the ideal Israel. It's the ultimate Israel, Jesus, who's now going to inaugurate the second exodus mm-hmm. and be and, and as the second Davidic king. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a remarkable passage. David, how do you see this uh, being used by Matthew. Why is Matthew pulling this in and linking it with Jesus? Well, it's another passage, as Gordon said, with correspondences. Uh, It is a statement, as Gordon said, but it does fit the circumstance and situation of Joseph responding in obedience to what the angel told him, take your family to Egypt. And then it it reflects also the fact that he's called because the angel comes back and says, okay, now it's time to go. So Joseph... Uh, responds again to the revelation that he's given. Jesus uh, is in Egypt. He is the son, preeminent son, as Gordon said. And all of the passage fits the circumstance of 
Jesus being in Egypt for a short period of time and then being brought back mm -hmm. to the land. Mm -hmm. So it's a correspondence on several different levels that works here. Okay. But again, with this escalation and yeah. typological, yeah. which is all part of what how the Old Testament is even viewing. The future is going to be recalibrating the past, yeah. but, but greater. In this context, it's again a reminder of God's preservation hmm. of Jesus until it's God's time for him to be the sacrifice for sins. Herod wanted to kill him, uh, but he wasn't able to do so because it wasn't God's time yet. Mm -hmm. Gerald, how did this fit into messianic expectation in the, in the Second Temple period, this idea of coming out of Egypt? Well, I don't know if this text is a necessarily a prominent um, messianic text, but what it is is a reinvoking of the fact that salvation is showing up. Mm -hmm. You call someone out, you call the nation out of Egypt because you were forming the people of Israel and you were in the process of taking them to the land. That's what the book of Exodus is all about. And so, um, and, and so what we see here is the um, preparation for the formation of a ministry that's going to deliver the people in this with this eschatological expectation, which Hosea has tipped his hand to in a bigger sense. You know, sometimes what's going on in these texts is we're citing a verse, but the verse is aware of the bigger story of what's going on from the place from which it is cited. Mm -hmm. and Because um, it activates the entire context. Exactly right. And, mm -hmm. and, and so there's this expectation of of deliverance, ultimately God's faithfulness to his nation in delivering them, et cetera, that's in play here. So, so again, you get a mirroring or a correspondence or a typology or there are lots of ways to <laughs> talk about it, uh, a pattern. Uh, there are probably four different ways to say the same thing. And, and in the pattern, you get the realization. And what's interesting about this one, what some people comment on is that the placement of this is actually pretty interesting because it's placed as Jesus is sent to Egypt, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then the extraction from Egypt, if you will, comes after the citation, mm -hmm. as opposed to the way many of the other citations work where you get the layout of what's going on, and then you get the citation following it in, in a description of kind of commentary. So this is almost anticipatory of what where the narrative is going to go because it's anticipatory of what the story of Jesus is from the standpoint of his birth. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the start of what is going to be a saga of deliverance on behalf of God's mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And it's another example in which the events have happened. I mean, God sovereignly orchestrated the events to send Jesus and the family down to Egypt, mm -hmm. uh, understandably, because God is in charge of history and he's setting up these events to create those correspondences. Mm -hmm. So Matthew's not just doing this literarily. He sees the events and he sees the patterns of what God actually was doing in history. Mm -hmm. And then when they look back on the, on the, uh, the exodus from Egypt, that was a great example of God's faithfulness. And then now we have this almost uh, a parallel to, here's a great example of God's faithfulness. And preservation. Well. You and know, that 10th right. plague was pretty devastating mm -hmm. and, and reached a lot of firstborn. And, uh, and yet the firstborn of those who participated in the Passover were preserved because they were uh, in connection with what it is that God mm -hmm. was doing. And the exodus from Egypt was a great thing, but the incarnation in Jesus and salvation of humanity is an even greater thing. Yeah. This is well, the first he, time, I think, in Matthew's Gospel, too, that Jesus is referred to as my son by mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The next time will be the baptism yeah. mm -hmm. when he formally begins his ministry. So. Mm -hmm. And Second Samuel 7, Davidic king was called my son. Mm -hmm. So you've got the link between Israel, my son, Davidic king, my son. Mm -hmm. Wow, it's amazing. Let's take a look at the third uh, snippet fourth, here. Now. Oh, yeah, that's right. Four. Thank you. <laughs> and um, this is why he, they had to leave, right? Because Herod killed, the, killed these children, um, as some people call the slaying of the holy innocents. Let's go to 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region, there were two-year-old... Uh, in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And here's verse 18 in a quotation. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Gordon, context in Jeremiah, what's going on so here? So again, we go back to the context in Jeremiah 31, 15. And this is a, this is a, wonderful example because we've been talking about pattern fulfillment and typological fulfillment. 
Jeremiah himself is talking typologically here himself. Mm. So what Matthew is going to do a typological uh, working of this, this, Jeremiah himself is doing it. So what's happening in Jeremiah 21, or sorry, 29 to 31, is that Jeremiah is dealing with the reality of the exile. Uh, Jerusalem is in exile, 586 B.C., and he pictures Jerusalem during the exile as being this, this woman, this mother who's been abandoned, bereft of her children, and she's heartbroken. And in Jeremiah 31, he comes back and forth to this imagery of Jerusalem as, as a woman and says, you're, you're heartbroken now, but one day I'm going to bring the children, your children back on the highway and you're going to be full of, full of joy, but now there's this, this drama. Now, the picture that, that Jeremiah has of, of Jerusalem during the exile is he says, a voice is heard in Ramah. That's an important tag as far as the city of Ramah. Hmm. And Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. He's referring back to Rachel. So Ramah was an important town, we mentioned. And Rachel was the wife of Isaac. Now, you remember, Isaac had two wives, Rachel and Leah. Mm-hmm. And uh, under the providence of God, Leah conceived first. He, she was less loved than Rachel was. Uh, and Rachel was heartbroken that she could never conceive. Uh, Genesis 30, Genesis 31, she's not able to have children. She's heartbroken. She's crying. She's, she, she wants to have children because she can't. And then finally God opens her womb and gives her children. And the first child she has is Joseph, the beloved child. As time goes on, then she conceives a second child, Benjamin, but she has such a terrible labor that she ends up dying in childbirth, and she's weeping, uh, not because she's lost her child, but because in very last breath she gives birth to a child that she that she had, wa- had longed for. But Rachel then becomes this 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 lamentable picture of a woman who is not able to have children and, and finally has them, but it's in the midst of tragedy. There's another example of this, too, which Hannah in, in, in 1 Samuel, the wife of Elkanah, she was barren as well, and she's lamenting. And uh, she prayed that God would give her a child, and finally God gave her a child, Samuel, who's the kingmaker. Well, Hannah lived in Ramah, hmm. okay? And so Hannah was from Ramah, Samuel was from, from Ramah, uh, and so Samuel was the kingmaker, and Samuel anointed David at Ramah, and all of these events happened at Ramah. Eventually, as time went on, when Israel got into trouble, their kings went foul. They went into exile. The Davidic dynasty, the throne got dismantled. The prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, talk about Ramah weeping because kingship has been taken away. Mm. And Rachel now is evoked because it's this picture of, of, the, of, of Jerusalem now as a woman who's been bereft of her children. But the context has to do with loss of kingship, exile, and it's taking us back to these figures... The, the ancestress of Israel, of Joseph and, and Benjamin, and then uh, the, the place where kingship began. Mm. Uh, so it, it sets up in so many wonderful ways as far as the kingship's now going to be restored. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, and Rachel's, uh, Rachel's uh, grief will one day be turned to joy because the king's coming. But in the meantime, Matthew's also seeing their parallels mm. because just as Jerusalem suffered at the hands of this violent, wicked king in the 6th century, now you've got an Israelite king mm. that's gone rogue. Mm-hmm. And the interesting mm-hmm. thing about this is sometimes is forgotten is this whole typological way of reading things is not something that Matthew invents. Right. It goes back to a Jewish way of thinking about history and a Jewish way of even reading the scriptures. And the beautiful thing about this text is, is that you see it. You see it within the Old Testament itself, this kind of way of putting history together. So that, um, so that when Matthew does it, he's doing something that, that his readers doing. are used to. The mm-hmm. Old Testament does it, and his readers can, can connect to it. Um, sometimes I think we as modern readers lose, lose context of, what, of the way in which texts were read. And therefore, it, it looks perhaps uh, cavalier or or either or innovative. And mm-hmm. in fact, it's it's something that's well established in terms of how to look at history uh, from within Jewish tradition. Interesting. You could say that Matthew's getting his hermeneutics of Jeremiah, his use of Jeremiah thirty-one from how Jeremiah thirty-one is used in the Old Testament. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. David, is there anything else you want to add about the significance of this for Matthew's readers? Well, uh, for Jeremiah, he's reflecting on 
Rachel's loss in probably in connection with the Assyrians carrying off the ten northern tribes and uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, her grandchildren, were uh, tribes in that area. But he's also from Jeremiah. I wonder if he's evoking Jeremiah's also word of hope. Yes, bad times are coming to Israel because he's predicting the Babylonian captivity, which is coming soon, but he also includes the promise of the new covenant mm-hmm. in Jeremiah mm. so that God, again, has mm-hmm. not forgotten his people. Mm. They will experience times of real trial and difficulty, and Matthew will narrate that as well when he talks about Jesus' prediction about the destruction of Jerusalem, which mm-hmm. comes later, uh, that the people of Israel may be facing a time of real trial and suffering and lamentation, but there is a promise bound up in the work that this child is going to bring about. And there might even be a little bit of an overhang in the fact that when Matthew is writing his gospel and things don't look necessarily quite so rosy for the new community, that no, God has a promise that he is carrying out and there's a there's a rest of the program. God will perform his word. It mm-hmm. will come and it will happen. Mm-hmm. And a comment that Jesus makes on the road with the disciples that said, you know, we thought he was the Messiah and then he died, mm-hmm. which in their mind disqualified him because they didn't, they didn't understand the scriptures. And he said, Did, don't you understand that the suffering has to come before the glory? Mm. And in Jeremiah 31, it starts off with, here's the suffering, but at the end, there's the glory. Jerusalem will be restored. There will be the new covenant and you're going to get get the new David. Yeah, there's a case mm-hmm. where Luke uh, where, where Luke compliments Matthew pretty nicely in terms of, of the struggle that the disciples are having, even after they've seen the ministry of Jesus and his death. They've heard the prediction, etc., but they don't quite get it. They don't quite get it till that tomb goes empty. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, the lights go on and, and they realize God is really doing this, and he does it in very surprising, unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, for the start out with the virgin birth, surprising, unexpected thing. That's right. And all of these, now Jesus is coming out of Egypt. How, how could that be orchestrated, right? Well, God has his hand all over this thing. Let's take a look at the very last passage now, and this is the return to Nazareth. They're coming back, verse 19 through the end. We'll just key in on uh, a la- the last part here on, in verse 23. But it starts out like this, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a sea called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So he would be called a Nazarene, what was spoken by the prophets. Gordon, what's the reference here, this, these prophets? <laughs> <laughs> That's the question. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's that? So we're not quite sure. Uh, it's, it's not, yeah, ironically enough, we've got several passages here that were not directly prophetic, that, that Matthew's using typologically and escalate. And here we're not quite sure, it's, it's not necessarily not a direct prophecy, we're not even quite sure where the prophecy is coming from. It looks like it's an example in which Matthew is taking language out of several texts mm. and combining them in some very creative ways and, and seeing the providential hand of God. And I think at this table, we've got probably five different views among the four of us <laughs> as far as what's happening. My gut feeling is, and, and a number of people are going to suggest that he's, Matthew's using language out of Isaiah 9-1 and language out of of, uh, Judges 13-5. In Isaiah 9-1, we're told, I'm sorry, uh, 11-1, this is about the new David. Um, A a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Mm. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And then it goes on to talk about this, this future David. Well, the term for the branch is the Hebrew word natzer, for, for brands, and Natzer in Hebrew sounds like the, the word for Nazarene. In Isaiah 11, it's... So it's a word play. It's a word play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Isaiah, the most common way to yeah. think yeah. to read this passage. Yeah. Yeah. In Isaiah 11, it's, it's clearly messianic, and it's a picture of the future David who's this, associated with the second exodus, so he's in the remote future, and he's this ideal Davidic king. And it's remarkable. I, I would have thought that Matthew would like quote this directly, but instead he, he there's a wordplay there, and it makes me wonder as if he's he's saying 
Yes, Jesus is this Isaiah 11, 1 to 6 king, but there's some other things going on. The fulfillment is not going to be exactly the way that you expect. He's a Natser, but, but in a different sense. And then also it looks like there's language drawn from Judges 13, 5, which is announcement of the birth of Samson. And I don't think any of us would take that in terms of thinking there was directly messianic. But it's interesting, the language in Judges 13, 5, uh, Isaiah 7, 14 evokes that kind of language. Uh, uh, when it's talking to uh, uh, the mother of, uh, of Samson, behold, uh, uh, talking about the wife, she is pregnant and will give birth to a son. It's mm. the very same kind of language you have in Isaiah 7, 14. So I'm wondering if... Matthew's use of Isaiah 7.14, he also knows mm. there's another passage that's got that same language. And here he goes on to say, the angel says, uh, he, uh, this child, uh, will be a Nazir to God all of his days, uh, a, a Nazarite. So you've got, uh, you've got this wordplay between, mm. and, and Nazarite refers to somebody who's specially dedicated to God, mm-hmm. who's specially empowered to deliver the people. So there's some, some things happening in terms of what, uh, what Matthew's doing. But I think it's an example in which the fulfillment is more broad in terms of how he's reading the Old Testament as a whole, some typological, some word plays. But it may be a clue that, that some of the old expectations of what Messiah is going to do, there's going to be some surprises and some things happening before he fulfills everything. Yeah, this is uh, what Gordon, I think, has done well to summarize what is probably the most common explanation the problem I have with that explanation is that it requires a certain sophistication of the reader that I don't think most of Matthew's readers would have. Uh, they have the Greek Old Testament. They probably don't know Hebrew. And so, and he talks about prophets as if it's more than one. Mm. So I'm a little more inclined to the view, well, I shouldn't say it's a, a common view, but the notion that Nazarene uh, refers to someone from, as Nathaniel said, what good, whoever came out of Nazareth, you know, mm-hmm. as someone who is lowly, meek, humble, and that Matthew will later quote some passages along this line. Uh, Jesus as the meek and lowly one who comes riding on a donkey. Jesus as the one out of Isaiah 42 who won't disturb anything. So I'm a little more inclined to think it evokes this meekness, humility, that characterizes Jesus contrary to expectations that a mm-hmm. king would come out of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. not, you're not saying that, that there's actually a, a passage that's got that language of Nazarene, but the imagery of meek and lowly, which Nazareth would have epitomized. Uh, yes, that idea. That mm-hmm. So it's more of a conceptual. And he does have, he does mention some prophets then later on that would emphasize that kind of a character, if you will, of Jesus. So being from Nazareth kind of epitomizes that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Daryl, how would you interact with this? Yeah, I almost have the suspicion that there's something almost um, secretive going on within, between Matthew and his readers, that he's evoking something, a connection perhaps that we have lost and we're trying to figure out, and they they are aware of the play here and what's going on, and we're trying to discover it. Um, just just because it is it is such a hard one to identify exactly what's going on, and the appeal to the prophets, plural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it could just be a way of saying in the scripture. I mean, and it could just be as generic as that, and there is something specific in mind. But usually, when you get prophets in the plural, there's there's more than one text and more than one idea in play, mm-hmm. and so this combination of things that we're talking about all have possibilities and no one knows, but I'm deeply suspicious that he was sending a signal and it's a, it's a cultural script that Matthew and his readers get that Mm -hmm. we've lost Mm -hmm. or that we're fishing for in terms of thinking about this. So it's a little bit of a harder text, but it does land us. You know, we come to the end here of, of a section in which we have had five appeals to the design of God as the birth of Jesus unfolds. And the whole point is to say, look, what is going on, as surprising and as wondrous as it is, is a part of the program and plan of God. And it's the beginning of a story in which the program and plan of God is unfolding, and it evokes pictures of rule, pictures of victory, pictures of God's presence, pictures of the eschaton, 
pictures of the Messiah. I mean, these two chapters are loaded. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if we think about the main themes that are coming out of this, we see prophecy, fulfillment, God's faithfulness, his, his faithfulness to his promises and to Israel and preservation. What would you say just as a uh, to encapsulate one main thing that a reader could take away from these these passages we've looked at, a pastor could just make sure that he brings out the significance of during a Christmas message, perhaps, what would that be? I, I think it'd be that God has been at work for centuries ahead of time in his design of history, of what he's been doing through his people, in his design of the very language and fabric of Scripture, and mm. that you've got the Old Testament, Old Covenant prophets are predicting new covenant glories, but the fulfillments, if you will, are suggesting that that the new covenant fulfillments dwarf old covenant expectations, mm. that, that Matthew's using old covenant texts, but the fulfillment is even greater. It's not just, it's not just that it matches, it's even greater and mm -hmm, grander mm -hmm. than anybody had in mind, and that's why it was so surprising, because Jesus is, 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 pushing the boundaries and going above and beyond because God's, God's plan is even greater than any of us could imagine. I think Jesus even said the same thing. He says, I'm trying to talk to you about earthly things, and you don't understand. How can I talk to you about heavenly things? And, you know, they're asking a question, you know, whose wife will, will she be? And uh, he says, you don't understand the power of the resurrection. How can I even begin to describe it for mm -hmm. you? And I think author of Hebrews is doing the same thing, is that the fulfillments are so much greater and so much grander. So the kind of things that Matthew's doing, I don't think, don't undermine what he's doing. It actually points to the fact that God's going above and beyond mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. anybody even had David, in mind. David, main takeaway? I think it's the idea that God does things in unexpected ways, things, ways that we would not imagine. We would be like the uh, Magi and think a king is going to be born in a capital in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But the events of Jesus' life don't seem to correspond to the way in which we think a royal child should be born and have to grow up. But here he is, this meek and lowly one mm -hmm. who comes to be the Savior of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Daryl? And then I think, you know, we tend to view Christmas by looking back and thinking about, well, this is what happened. We put it all in the past. But this career actually envelopes the audience that you're preaching to. Mm -hmm. There is what God has done, and then there's what still he is going to do through Jesus. And this is the beginning of the story. And sometimes we lose the fact that we are caught up in the same drama. Um, we forget that. And so we look back on it as history. Well, it's actually, for those who are believers, it's our story too. And, and the promises that God has kept are an assurance that there are other promises that God will keep mm -hmm. and that this design extends beyond us and wraps around us and hugs us in his grace. Mm -hmm. And and that is I think uh, another part of this of this story, you know, that the that the incarnation drives to the cross and to the ascension and then eventually to the return mm -hmm. and to the vindication of God's people and the reestablishment of God's presence on the earth. God is with us, and he is with us always. Amen. That's good news of great joy for all the people. Thank you, Daryl, for being with us. Thank you, Gordon. And thank you, David, for being with us. And thank you so much for joining us on the Table podcast today. Please stay with us next week where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to the Table podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.